0: Chapter 16 Alien attack craft are inbound and a direct assault approach. Still no response to our hails from the alien carrier vessel. All eyes on the command deck of the Macarius were fixed upon Semper. He felt the nervous, expectant gaze of his crew upon him, and could almost sense the anxious babble of thoughts going on beneath the tense, silent atmosphere which filled his vessel's bridge. What's the old man playing at? They were no dead thinking. But under attack, several of our sister ships have been attacked and destroyed, and he wants to parley with these Xenos scum. We should be opening up at them, with torpedoes and broadsides, not hailing frequencies. Semper understood his crew's frustration and anger. Nevertheless, something compelled him to try this most unorthodox of strategies. Enemy attack craft squadrons still approaching, Commodore, warned Remus Nider. Never lifting his gaze from the vital information relayed to him from his surveyor screen. They're fast, these Xenos crits. Damned fast. The unspoken warning in his report was obvious. Whatever it is you're hoping for, you better hope it happens soon. Semper paused. His mouth suddenly dry. Again, some ineffable sense told him there was much more at stake here than just the safety of his ship and the lives of his crew. Somehow, he knew that what happened here would have important ramifications far beyond this moment and far beyond the borders of the stabbier system. Something told him that the fate of the entire Gothic sector could be at stake, depending on what he did next and how his alien opponent reacted. Hailing frequencies, he asked, struggling to keep any hint of inner turmoil out of his tone. Open, sir, but still no response to our signals, answered a communications officer. Then open them all, dammit! Use every frequency we've got! They may not want to talk to us, but by hell I'll make sure they can't pretend not to hear us! Simper waited until a communications ensign gave him the signal that all comms channels were now open, drawing himself up to his full height, and automatically and unconsciously assuming his most imposing and authoritative voice, he cleared his throat and began to speak. Attention, Commander of the Alien Vessel. This is Commodore Leotun Semper, Captain of His Divine Majesty's Ship, the Lord Macarius. You have attacked my vessel, and we have been forced to defend ourselves. I know that there has been conflict between our two forces already, and I know we have both suffered the loss of sister vessels and the deaths of valued comrades. It was never our intention for any of this to happen. We came here as you did, in good faith. We came to talk, not to do battle. "'There is suspicion and hostility between our two races, perhaps with good cause. "'But I am a warrior, just as you are. "'As warriors, we must follow orders, and my orders were to watch and guard, not to attack. "'It was never my intention to engage in battle with you and your forces, "'and it is not my wish to do so now. "'Your vessel's strike craft are even now approaching my ship on a direct attack course.' My own ship's squadron stand ready to meet them, just as my vessel's gunners stand ready to open fire on you, to defend my ship against further attack. If you continue in this current course of action, we will defend ourselves with all the forces at our command. And then there will be no turning back for any of us, for either of our two races. As one captain to another, as one warrior to a fellow warrior, I beg you to reconsider your actions. There... "'There are things here, hidden from us both, I think. "'Do not ask me to explain, for I cannot. "'But I believe there is some other force at work here, "'a force which neither of us is responsible for.' "'The Monkai's words, barbaric, alien, and incomprehensible to most of those listening, "'echoed through the bridge of the Volun Show. "'Lilithon, listening along with the rest of her crew, "'had to wait several more seconds for one of her vessel's mind-talker crew,' to finish translating the alien commander's words. As soon as the mind-speech translation was finished, Lilithun and Aliel exchanged looks. In contrast to the captain of the Volun show, there was hope and surprise in the face of the vessel second in command. You heard what the alien commander said, Craft Mistress. He has doubts, just as we have. We must call off this attack before it is too late. Monkai lies! More Monkai lies! Tricks and deceit! They are filled with lies, filled with deception. This is all they are capable of. That is all their animal souls can conceive. Lilithon's voice was a shriek, the unshielded emotion that filled her, emphasised by the blast of unmasked contempt which she, mind-speech, sent out to accompany her spoken words. Elilo staggered as if physically struck, so powerful were the raw emotions of hatred and contempt psychically broadcast by his commander. There was a hushed, shocked silence all across the bridge. Several crew members made brief, frightened gestures while casting nervous glances at their ship's commander. Elilo recognized it, the fourth aspect of the second invocation of protection, seeking protection from an Eldar whose animus was possessed by powerful emotions. It was a powerful signal. Rarely seen in Eldar society, and used only in extreme circumstances, as a show of severe disapproval at any Eldar whose emotional behaviour had gone beyond acceptable bounds, it harked back to the dark time of the four, and carried with it the Eldar's fear of events of that time, and of the cause of those events. Raw, unchecked emotion was what the Eldar feared most of all. Unbridled. Their race's darkest and most sensual emotions had once almost destroyed them. Now every Eldar kept this side of themselves in a careful check, and maintained a secret but equally close watch over the passions of their comrades. Lilithan recognized the gesture too, and knew all too well what it meant. She stepped back, struggling to rein in the fierce emotions raging inside her. All eyes were on her, all Eldar minds thinking the same carefully masked thoughts. And Elilil can only imagine how aware she must have been of the secret words those minds were now whispering to themselves. Outcast. Renegade. A share. Elilil, my old friend. My craft comrade. I apologise. Her voice was harsh and broken. Her gesture of contrition clumsy and confused. Tears welled in her eyes, bringing more signs of fear and disapproval from her crew. Compassion. Welled up within, Allelil. You feel the loss of Corneus deeply, honored craft mistress, as we all feel the loss of any of our brethren. There will be a time for mourning, and then we shall remember our brother Corneus in a time, Lilithin. And this hatred you are filled with, this vendetta you pursue against the humans, these are not fitting ways to mourn those we have loved. He was looking directly at her now. "'his body language emphasising the nature of the relationship between them. "'You are craftmaster, but I am Lan K. "'It is my duty, when required, to bring water to quench your fire.' "'All was still on the bridge of the Volun Show, although it had been unspoken. Elilil had made clear his intention to have Lilithun replaced as craftmaster, "'as was his right, as ship's Lan Ka, "'if he believed that his superior was no longer fit for command.' Never before, that anyone could remember in the history of craft-walled Aeneosis, had a vessel second-in-command ever had to invoke this ancient law. If it were to happen now, Lilithan's shame and disgrace would be great indeed, and she would have no other choice than to leave the safety of Aniosis and become a true Asher, a renegade, without ties or allegiance to any craft-world, a homeless exile." Lilithin realised the enormity of what she had done, of how close she had come to crossing that forbidden line, which her race drew around themselves long ago. She looked at her second-in-command. Elilo, wise Elilo, tell me what to do, and I will make it so. The flight decks aboard the Macarius were a hive of activity, as yet more Fury Fighters and Starhawk bomber craft were brought up from the hangar decks and prepped for takeoff. The Macarius and its attack craft squadrons were going to war. Strapped into the seat of his fury, keitha cursed loud at his ground crew, angrily urging them on to hurry up and get his fighter prepper launch, even though he himself knew it would take several more minutes to familiarise himself with the status of the craft. Behind him, Manartho intoned tech prayers under his breath as he communed with the fighter's machine mind, running diagnostic checks on its systems. Their own fighter was a write-off, Crippled beyond salvage after the earlier battle, and himself had conducted the rite of expiration over the remains of their former craft. This new one was a training craft. No two craft were identical, and even though Ketha knew the dangers of entering combat in an unfamiliar craft, he was still impatient to be underway. The rest of his squadron was already launched and facing the incoming wave of alien attack craft, and Ketha was keen to rejoin them before the battle began. ''How long to launch?'' he asked impatiently. Eight minutes,'' answered Manatho, in between snatches of the fourth passage of the rite of blessed synchronisation. ''It being exactly one minute and fifteen seconds since you last asked the same question.'' Keitha's reply, good-natured but typically foul mouthed was cut off by the booming voice broadcast over the flight deck vox callers. ''Flight deck commander to all flight crews and ground crews!'' Stand down, that is an order. All launch missions have been put on hold. Complete pre-flight preparations and then stand to and await further instructions. Keith could not believe what he had just heard, and this time his comment to Minato was less good-natured, but equally foul-mouthed. Van Dyer's arse! The enemy attack wave is almost on top of us! Just what do those stupid scavenging bastards up on the command deck think they're playing at? Confirmed, sir. The alien attack craft formations are turning back. It looks like they're intending to maintain a wide holding pattern in orbit around the alien carrier cruiser. Semper looked to Remus Snyder for confirmation of his own reading of the situation. The grizzled ordnance officer nodded in agreement. A climb down, but not a complete back-off, so where do we go from here? Semper looked at the enigmatic image of the Eldar ship on the bridge's main oarspeck screen. A good question, Mr. Nider, he breathed to himself. A very good question indeed. The answer was not long in coming. The ship was cruising on three-quarter speed, carefully managing its tell-tale power emissions, gliding in amongst the invisible and unpredictable radio wave currents thrown out by the pulsar star. It blanketed itself in their static interference, using them to further mask its presence from its prey. Finally, though, it had to emerge from its concealment. When it did, it would be quickly detected by its prey's surveyor senses. It didn't matter, Judge, the ship's commander. He and his vessel still had a second means of concealment at hand. By the time the prey detected the subterfuge, it would be too late. Contact! shouted a surveyor ensign aboard the Macarius. A capital-class vessel coming in at its speed off our port side. ''Identify!'' barked Semper, aware that it would take only the slightest thing to destroy the fragile ceasefire they had seemingly only just managed to achieve with the Eldar. ''Or perhaps you are the one who has been betrayed,'' said a worrying voice inside him. ''Perhaps it is another Eldar vessel, and this ceasefire was only a ploy to allow them time to gather their forces against you. Its shields are raised, and its powering weapons... Wait, I'm picking up a registry code. It's an Imperium ship!'' It's the Drakenfels, sir. Open hailing frequencies. Get me through to Ramus immediately. Communications officers and adepts hurriedly carried out their captain's orders, but to little avail. A senior communications officer nervously informed Semper of their failure. No response, sir. The Drakenfels appears to be running death. Either her comnet is down, or she's refusing to talk. Semper's angry oath sent the officer scurrying back to his station, Raising his head, Semper stared at the surveyor's screen, seeing the target icon of the Drakenfels bearing down on his position and that of the Eldar ship. Erwin Rammus was a fine captain, he knew, one of the best he had ever had the privilege of serving alongside. But he was also a hard and uncompromising man, and he was an Eldar hater of long and bitter standing. Ramis! you cantankerous old bastard, what are you playing at?' Semper murmured to himself, fearing the worst." A second uh, human vessel, intoned one of the Volun Show's bridge crew. It is the same one which we believe destroyed the Lament of Elsho. It is coming in on an attack approach, with weapons armed. The first human vessel is hailing it. What response to their hails? asked Elilil, anxiously. None so far that we can detect. Lilithan and Elilil looked at each other. Communing quickly in silent mind-speech, both soon came to the same mutual decision. Signal the attack squadrons. Tell them to prepare for battle again. Eldar crewmen glanced towards Alelil, who countenanced Lilithan's orders with an impatient gesture of command to them. With two powerful human warships apparently ranged against them, now was no longer the time to cancel caution. Aboard the Drakenfels, cocooned in his armoured Strategium shell, Erwin Ramus poured over the information fed through to him by his ship's surveyor senses. They were closing in rapidly on the target. All he needed was a few more precious moments to catch his prey unawares. Aboard the Macarius, Semper could feel the situation slipping out of control again as more and more information came through to him. Draconvale's still inbound on our position, still no answer to our hails. Alien cruiser is moving away, could be swinging round to begin its own attack. Alien attack craft are changing course, speed and formation. They're reforming for an attack. Commodore, we must do something. This last came from Nider, who was staring hard at his captain. Swiftly, Semper came to a decision. Bring us around. Put us between the Drakenfels and the Eldar ship. If Ramus wants to fire upon the alien vessel, he'll have to go for us first. The order brought blank looks of surprise and consternation from the bridge crew. If they were caught by surprise by their captain's first order, then what came next was to truly shock them. Arm two torpedoes and get ready to fire on my orders. Our target is the Drachenfels. Perhaps a shot across Ramus's bowels will encourage him to start talking. Reluctantly, but efficiently, the bridge crew prepared to carry out their captain's orders. Powerful manoeuvring thrusters swung the Macarius round in space, bringing it onto a direct target bearing with the oncoming Drakenfels. Semper was awaiting final confirmation that torpedoes were loaded, aimed and ready to fire, when the urgent call came in from the command deck surveyor section. Contact! Another capital-class vessel incoming on the same approach vector as the Drakenfels. It's following on right behind it. Identify Immediately! The seconds seemed to stretch out forever, before Semper got his answer. Another Imperium Registry Code! Wait, it's the same one! Energy signatures match too! Golden Throne, according to the reading, the second ship is also the Drakenfels. Aboard the Dark Eldar Cruiser, all was silent as they awaited the order to fire. Suddenly there was a commotion amongst the crew manning the ship's sensor systems. Their captain's threatening hiss of displeasure was abruptly cut off by a warning shout from one of his crew. Monkai vessel detected directly astern. It's powering up weapons and locking onto us with targeting scanners. The Dark Eldar captain hissed in fury. His plan had been a good one, but he had been outthought and outcaptained by a mere monkey animal. His humiliation would be great indeed if he ever survived to return in disgrace to Kamora. Erwin Ramus smiled, as his mind link to his ship's systems confirmed that targeting systems had locked on to the alien craft. It had been a difficult chase, and only luck and skillful navigation had allowed him and his vessel to follow the alien ship and remain undetected on its tail for so long. The enemy vessel was a hunter, all its senses focused on the prey ahead of it, little suspecting that it itself was also being hunted. Yes. It had been a difficult chase, but now the chase was over. Fire! Ramus commanded. A full quartet of torpedoes rumbled out of their prow silos and roared away towards their target. Caught by surprise, and with its attacker appearing at such close quarters, the Dark Eldar vessel did what it could to evade the attack, turning rapidly to port and putting on a sudden burst of speed to escape the reach of the torpedoes. Had it been shadow-cloaked in the usual manner, of a Dark Eldar vessel, its manoeuvre might have succeeded. But there had been no time to disengage its mimic engines, and it was still broadcasting the energy signature of a larger and more powerful human cruiser vessel, giving the crude machine minds of the torpedo warheads a clear target to lock onto. One of the torpedoes went astray, while another struck the target astern, inflicting serious damage on the Dark Eldar cruiser's engine systems. The remaining two torpedoes missed their target, but... Armed with proximity fuses, the warheads detonated close enough to the target to cause widespread minor damage to the ship's thinly armoured hull and to violently buffet the cruiser vessel from prow to stern. The damage was not crippling, but it was more than enough to achieve the intended purpose. The cruiser's mimic engines imploded, unmasking its true shape to those watching on the viewing screens on the bridges of both the Macarius and the Volun Human and Eldar eyes alike saw the same thing, as the image of the first detected vessel claiming to be the Drakenfels suddenly wavered and flickered weirdly in and out of existence in the direct aftermath of the torpedo's hit. For a brief second, those watching thought they saw the images of ships of many different classes and races appear in rapid, bewildering succession. But then... The cascade of false images was abruptly gone, and all that remained was the image of another, different kind of vessel entirely. To humanise... It looked like something more akin to an engine-powered blade than a space vessel. Its lines were sharp and cruel, its silhouette vicious and dagger-like. It had little exterior hull detail, and the black, non-reflective material of its hull seemed to suck in the available light from the star field around it, so that its shape blended into the blackness of space. An assassin's blade. That was what it looked like. Sinister and concealed. Fast and lethal. Aboard the Borland Show, Lilithan and her crew looked at the newly revealed vessel in dread, instantly knowing it for what it truly was. Drakari cruiser! spat Alilo, his tone full of utter loathing. Lilithan... Looked at the image on the screen, suddenly realising the full implications of the discovery of the Dark Eldar presence in the Stavia system. Suddenly realising the game their enemies had been playing against her and the humans, and realising the terrible mistake she had come so close to making. Anger welled up within her, but was quickly subdued again. Instead of any personal anger, all that remained in her was the cold, calm fury and hatred, and loathing all those of her race bore towards their once kin... "'Signal the attack squadrons. They have a new target. "'Maldonan! No mercy to the Dracari abomination!' "'Good to see you're with us again, Drakenfels. "'You had us worried there for a moment.' "'Irwin Ramesses' rasping, electronic-created laugh "'sounded over the comnet of the Macarius's bridge.
1: "'The Emperor's
0: favour was with us, Leotin.' We caught a glimpse of that damn thing on our surveyors after it goaded us and one of the alien ships into attacking each other. We pursued it, and since then we've been chasing ghosts and shadows all over this damned hole of a star system. After we finally found it again and got on its tail, we couldn't break Comnet's silence and risk letting them know we were there. Understood, Drakenfels, smiled Semper. Do your gunnery crews require any help finishing the target, or do you think you can handle this one without our help? Let the damn Xenos kind kill each other, Lyotun, snarled Ramus in reply. I have found better targets for our gunners to practice on. In his strategium, Ramus directed his bridge crew to send their gathered surveyor findings through to the other Imperial Navy ship. Moments later, Its contents, sifted through by the living machine mind that inhabited the Macarius's logic engines, the data was fed through to the bridge crew and, instantly, three new target icons appeared on the surveyor screens. Ramus chuckled to himself, and the sound carried over the comnet, even as the startled cries of contact rang out from the Macarius's command deck. "'Yes, Leoten, there are still more surprises, free of the despoilers' fleet.' One carnage and two escorts. The cruiser and one of the escorts has been clipped once or twice already, so it would appear that Von Blocher gave a good account for himself. They were sneaking round your flanks, hiding amongst all this damned pulsar interference, when we crossed their path and picked up traces of their energy wake. "'They're working with the alien vessel?' asked Simper. "'You have another explanation for their presence here?' answered Ramus. Semper did not. He turned to the communication section. Relay the information we've just received to the Eldar vessel. Tell them that their enemies and our enemies are the same. Our enemies have united against us, so let us do the same. He turned to Nida, but the Macarius's Master of Ordnance had already anticipated his captain's next question. All attack craft squadrons are mobilized and ready. The Eldar squadrons are already closing in on the other alien target vessel. We follow them in. Semper smiled. We do, Mr. Nider. We'll let the alien bomber pilots have their fun, and then we'll have our pilots show them how a precision bombing run should be really done. Like avenging harpies, the formations of Eldar Eagle bombers fell upon the Dark Eldar Cruiser. All their race's hatred and loathing of their fallen kin came to the fore as the bomber pilots and their crews attacked the fleeing cruiser with unsurpassed fury. Heedless of the fire from the cruiser's own defences, they flew in recklessly close, not releasing their payload until they were sure of striking the target at some vulnerable point. Not peeling away, not peeling away from the curtain of fire thrown out by the Dark Eldar vessel's defence turrets until they were satisfied that their missiles had caused sufficient damage to the enemy ship. Of the eagles that had left the Vorloon Show, only three quarters would return to their wraith-bone cradles within the cruiser's launch base. The Dark Eldar ship staggered under the fusillade of missiles. It threw out a protective shadow field to conceal itself from the enemy craft, confusing pilot senses and targeting scanners. But these were not human eyes and human targeting scanners they face now, and the Eldar pilots and the infinity circuit systems of their craft easily saw through such evasions. Sonic warhead missiles designed to impact against the far denser armour and hull structure of orc and human ships pierce the body of the dark Eldar craft with ease, exploding deep within it and wreaking bloody havoc amongst the ship's shadow-haunted decks and galleries. The crews of the Eldar attack craft were well aware that this vessel was probably responsible for the loss of Medeb's shield and possibly also at least one of the missing human vessels too. The slave pens, in its dismal holds, were most likely crammed with captured prisoners, fodder for the Drakari's abominable appetite for cruelty and pain. And it was also likely that there were Eldar amongst those prisoners. Such awful knowledge did not deter any of the bomber crews, as they brought their craft in close-range attack against the Dark Eldar ship and more than one pilot or bombardier mind-spoke the words of prayers of solace to themselves as they launched their deadly payload at the target, knowing that the death they were now condemning the captured slave fodder to was a far cleaner and quicker one than whatever fate otherwise awaited them in the Dracarys' secret citadel base. By the time the last of the Eldar bombers peeled away from the target, They left behind them a vessel, transformed in minutes into a shattered, broken ruin. The ship's hull was pierced in dozens of places. Fires raged out of control on many of its decks, while others had been blasted completely open and exposed to the hard vacuum of space, sweeping them instantly clean of all life. Panicked, By the explosions, which had racked the ship from end to end, and hunger-maddened by the pain-filled psychic screams broadcast from the minds of the dead and injured, the warp beasts and homunculi-created monstrosities imprisoned in their lightless kennels, in the whole decks broke free of their restraints and went on a rampage, killing Dark Elder and terrified prisoners alike. For those slaves who had survived the initial bomber attack, the interior of the crippled ship must have seemed like hell itself. Some decks were an inferno aflame, others were gripped by the stellar chill of open space, while the mindless abominations from the ship's darkest depths wandered freely through its chambers and passages, killing everything which crossed their path in the most brutal and terrible ways imaginable. Fortunately for any innocents still alive within the dying craft, this particular vision of Hell would prove to be mercifully brief. As the Eldar attack wave peeled away, The slower-moving Starhawks from the Macarius followed in their wake. What the Eldar had begun, the pilots of the Imperial Navy craft would complete. Waves of plasma warhead missiles smashed into the dark Eldar cruiser's fatally weakened body. Entire sections of the ship were vaporised. The prow section blew apart, struck by ten or more missiles. The vessel's dark matter reactor was breached, releasing the pent-up fury of the ship's nameless power source, in an all-consuming blast of destructive energy. The rear portion of the ship was disintegrated, disappearing in a lightless explosive flash, which seared itself into the surveyor screens of the Imperial craft, appearing as a brief and miniature black hole, which hungrily sucked in every available piece of matter in the vicinity, including free, luckless Starhawk craft, trailing in the rear guard of Firedrake Squadron's formation. The Dark Eldar ship's commander need have no fear now of the prospect of the cruel wrath of his Cabal Lord when he returned in failure and humiliation to Camorra, for there was literally nothing left to show that he and his vessel had ever even existed. The Carnage-class cruiser Despicable and its two escorts had expected to take their targets by surprise. Coming in with their energy patterns subdued, and following the Surveyor-confounding pulsar lines already mapped out by their temporary allies, they had expected to find an enemy force divided, and possibly even warring amongst themselves, an enemy thrown into doubt and confusion by the subterfuge tactics of the Dark Elder. What they found instead were three cruiser-class vessels, including two powerful Imperial ships of the line, already alerted to their presence and bearing down upon them fast and hard. The Volun Show darted ahead of the slower Imperial ships, drawing the enemy fire upon itself. Lance shots from the Despicable and torpedo shots from its escorts reached out into space in search of the Eldar ship, but its speed, maneuverability and baffling cloaks of hollow fields eluded the enemy's best efforts. Then, suddenly turning and effortlessly slipping past a brace of torpedoes from the escorts, it quickly closed to within firing range and opened fire with its pulsar lance. One of the escorts, already damaged from the earlier battle against the Graf Orlok, took the full brunt of the stream of tightly focused laser energy and exploded apart. The Volon Show attempted to slip away again, but the manoeuvre brought it within reach of the despicable's rows of powerful flank batteries. Even with its hollow fields fully deployed, the Eldar ship could not evade the full effects of the punishing curtain of fire projected from the Chaos Cruiser's weapons batteries. The delicate... Crystalline membranes of its top sails were partially shredded by the impacts of half a dozen macro-cannon rounds, and a bleeding, ragged gash opened up along the length of its portside hull by the slashing beams of batteries of laser cannons. The Volonshow retreated out of range of the Chaos Guns again, its hollow fields projecting a rearward display of confusing multiple false images to cloak the escape manoeuvre. Lilithan knew that many long and painful months awaited her ship and its birth on Anniulsis, as the Bonesingers and Fabricators repaired the damage done to the living psychoplastic material of the Vorlun Show's structure. The gambit had paid off, however. By seizing the Chaos Gunner's attention, the Vorlun Show's risky maneuver had permitted the two Imperial ships to close to within firing range of the Chaos Force. Dual torpedo salvos from the Macarius and the Drachenfels hammered into the Despicable, "'registering several successful hits upon it. "'One struck the base of its command tower, bursting through the thick armour there "'and sending columns of fire roaring up through the interior of the tower. "'Another detonated amongst the galleries of gun batteries on the cruiser's forward port side, "'knocking out of action the weapon emplacements located there.' Moving in close and coming under fire from the Despicables' prior batteries, the Macarius opened up with its own portside batteries, goring the Chaos Cruiser's void-shield defences. The Despicables' remaining infidel-class escort darted in towards the Imperial Cruiser, launching torpedoes at its vulnerable underbelly and engine sections. A patrolling swarm of Fury Interceptors launched for just such a task, moved in quickly to intercept the Ordnance weapons, subjecting them to a bombarding hail of LAS cannon and missile fire and detonating them harmlessly in space before they could reach their target. Any further annoyance value the Chaos Escort ship might have had was brought to a swift end when the Drakenfels turned its starboard side lance turrets upon it. Eviscerated by the sweeping lance beams, the craft was quickly reduced to a blazing and lifeless wreck. Outgunned, outmanoeuvred, stripped of his escorts and the fighting capability of his ship dangerously reduced, the master of the despicable chose to withdraw, trusting to his vessel's superior speed to carry him away from the Imperial vessels, judging also that the faster but lightly armoured Eldar vessel would be unlikely to give pursuit on its own. Disengaging, he turned away, presenting his undamaged starboard side toward the Imperial ships and allowing the gun batteries there to bring their sights to bear on the enemy cruisers. The Drakenfels took the full brunt of the fire from the Chaos Cruiser's formidable array of weapons batteries. Its void shields vanished in moments. Erwin Ramus balked in pain and anger as he felt the enemy gunfire punch through the vessel's armoured skin, several particularly wounding hits penetrating deep into his vessel's body to damage its most vital systems. Every surveyor screen on the bridge and gunnery bay command posts went temporarily blank as one salvo of plasma missiles smashed into the ship's surveyor system, knocking them out of action, while a stream of laser fire also crippled the ship's void shield generators. Blinded and robbed of its shield protection, the Drakenfels would be of little use for the time being in any further engagements. Staying close by to protect its damaged sister ship, the Macarius had little choice but to allow the despicable, the prize of its fortunate escape. Although Semper ensured that a brace of launch torpedoes would further speed the Chaos vessel on its way and give the enemy's defence turret crews something to occupy themselves with, standing on the bridge of his ship, still flushed with the unnerving euphoria of battle, Semper at first did not hear the reports from his communications officer, Incoming ship to ship communication signal, sir, the man repeated again, finally catching his captain's attention. From the Drakenvales, the officer paused before answering. No, sir, from the alien ship. They're hailing you by name. At Semper's signal, the communication from the Volun show was put onto an open Comnet channel. Craft Master Semper. I, we, are Lilithan second born of the union of Fariada and Mogrial, who is also now known to you as craft mistress of this vessel, which you term Volun The Eldar's voice was strange and eerie, her phrasing of the gothic tongue of the Imperium stilted and awkward. Semper, and those listening, could not know it, But Lilithan did not speak one word of the language, and was speaking the words as they were psychically communicated to her by the thought-talkers who had some fluency in Gothic. This is Semper, Borlund Show. Go ahead. Again, the strange alien voice sounded over the command deck comnet. You fight well, human. I, we, thank you for your aid you have given. And I, we, regret... What nearly came to pass between our two ships. But we still have comrades trapped on the world below, Semper Human. Both your people and those craft brethren precious also to us. What do you propose, Vorlon asked Semper. The answer he received made perfect sense, and flew in the face of everything he had been taught in his entire life regarding the well-known dangers of having any dealings with cunning Xenos creatures such as as these Eldar. Chapter 17 It began with screaming. It would end with screaming, too. Sheltering in what little cover there was on offer in the ravine, Volante tried to snatch a few hours' much-needed rest after the battle in the ruins and the desperate flight through the storm and across the barren surface of the planet. Minutes or hours later, he couldn't tell, and the deadly, muscle-numbing weariness which had gripped him earlier seemed no less diminished he was awakened by the sound of screaming. With a shock, he realised that it was one of the Eldar sentries screaming. Banshee warriors, Horst had called them. The sound seemed to start off as a scream of warning or defiance, but at some swift point became transformed into a scream of pain, a long, ululating howl which could only have been caused by some awful abomination being inflicted upon living, vulnerable flesh. The scream ended, perhaps mercifully, in a dying, choking gurgle, horribly amplified by the vox caster systems built into the Eldar warrior's helm. Seconds later, the gunfire began. The harsh, dry hiss of dark Eldar weaponry, answered seconds later by the quieter, different-toned sound of the Eldar's own armaments. Alante was on his feet in moments, almost colliding with Maxim, who had armed himself with a shot cannon following the loss of his heavy bolter. The big hive worlder's eyes were red rimmed, his pupils fixed and dilated. He had been chewing taji root for hours and was pumped up on aggression and pain from his wounds. Alante knew that if Maxim Barossa was going to die today, he wouldn't die easily. As Alante hurried off towards the sounds of battle, Maxim paused to recheck the load on his shot cannon. He wasn't yet too narcoticized that he would forget to do what, for him, was so basic and elementary a survival precaution as to be second nature to him. He felt eyes on him and looked up to see Commissar Kyogen nearby, propped up against the rock wall of the ravine. By all rights, Kyogen should be dead by now. One of Horst's retinue was a qualified medic and had done what he could for the ship's commissar, but the Dark Eldar Round, which had struck him down, had been imbued with some kind of anticoagulant poison, and the medic had been unable to staunch the flow of blood that seeped out from the deep wound in the man's flesh. Kyogen was big, as big as Barossa himself, perhaps, but the Hive Hiveworlder had been amazed that even a body as large as that could contain so much blood. Kyogen's uniform and thick felt coat were heavy with the stuff, and the dust of the ground around him stained dark by the creeping tide of blood still oozing out of him. He was still conscious, perhaps the medic had given him something to prevent him passing out, or perhaps Maxim mused with a smile. A stickler for the rules, such as ships, commissar, Cobra, Kyogen, wasn't allowed to pass out and die until he received the properly authenticated orders to do so. He gripped his bolt pistol tight in one hand, and a small book, probably something about naval regulations and discipline, Maxim supposed, in the other holding it tightly to his chest and glared at Maxim. Maxim looked back and laughed. Don't forget to save the last round for yourself, Commissar. We can't afford the likes of you falling into the hands of the Xenos and spilling your guts about the precious secrets contained in all them regulation manuals and loyalty codices you're so fond of. The only reply he got was a mute, hostile glare. Still laughing, Maxim turned his back on the dying man and ran off after Ulante. Kailasa moved forward with the first line of Dark Eldar warriors, keen to ensure that his orders were carried out. The Mandrakes, who had gone on ahead of the rest of the Dark Eldar force and who had successfully tracked down and located the Prey's hiding place, had been allowed to keep and do whatever they wanted with the enemy sentries, but Kailasa had ordered on pain of death that no one else should be allowed to kill any of the Prey. It was vital that the Farseer was taken alive, and the Cabal commander did not want to risk any chance that his prize might be killed by mistake. The Dark Eldar advanced into the face of sporadic, scattered fire from the Craftworld Eldar and their Monkai allies, sheltering in the scant cover of the rockfall at the mouth of the ravine. They had no heavy weapons, and not enough ranged ones to count. Given time, Kailasan knew, it would be a simple matter to surround them and picked them off at leisure with massed volleys of splinter rifle fire, backed up by covering fire from the several heavy weapons still possessed by what remained of his force. But time was something the Dark Eldar Lord no longer had. He had received word that the ships belonging to the Craftworld Eldar and the Monkai had not only failed to destroy each other, but had united together and were in the process of driving off his own vessels. Soon they would send shuttles to rescue their kin trapped here, but it was Kailasa's intent that all these would-be rescuers would find would be dust and a pile of corpses, with the Dark Eldar long ago escaped through a webway portal, taking their captive prizes with them. And besides, he still wanted to take as many captives alive as possible. His losses so far had been higher than expected. Added to this, the loss of an entire torture-class cruiser as now seemed highly likely, would not carry much favour back in Kimura, and so, in order to help assuage his Archon's potentially lethal displeasure and save face, it was now in his interests to bring back as many prize captives as possible. One of the warriors in front of him cried out and fell, struck down by a well-aimed shot from a shuriken catapult. His companion instinctively raised his splinter rifle and returned fire, sending out a hail of deadly poison-coated splinter shots towards the rocks. Just as instinctively, Kailasa raised his own splinter pistol and shot the warrior in the back. Agonizer rounds only, he commanded. my want live flesh, not corpses. Mindful of the brutal lesson just displayed, the rest of his troops took greater care in firing upon their enemies. Although agonizer shots could still kill They were intended to subdue their targets and render them incapable of escaping, inflicting mainly minor superficial wounds but introducing a nerve toxin into the target's bloodstream which would subject them to the most horrific agonies for a short time but leave them still alive afterwards. Living targets struck by agonizer rounds would frequently break their bones and wrench apart joints and muscle so severe were the spasms and contortions caused by the toxin. Kailasa had seen victims chew through their own tongues on occasion, paralysed by pain and choking to death on their own blood. But it was still his most favoured and amusing method of taking captives. Laughing in anticipation of the glory that would soon be his, he ran on into the battle. The Dark Elder were in amongst them now, overrunning the defenders at the entrance to the ravine and falling upon those behind. An armsman in front of Alante cried out and fell to the ground, screaming shrilly and writhing in agony. Although the only wound Olante could see on him was a tearing flesh wound to his shoulder from a passing shot from one of the Dark Eldar weapons. This was the third time Alante had seen one of his men, or the Eldar, so struck down, and he swiftly realised that they had just discovered yet another form of the maliciously perverse warfare favoured by these Dark Eldar creatures. The Dark Eldar warrior, who had just picked off the armsman, sighted Olante and swung its pistol round to fire on him. Alante ducked, hearing the sinister hiss of the crystalline shot as it skimmed past him. He came up firing, sending two lads shots into the target's central body mass. It went down hissing in pain, its armour partially protecting it from the worst of the damage. Alante kept on firing, sending more lads shots into the thrashing body of the Dark Elder, only stopping when he had completely depleted what remained of his weapon's power charge. When he had finished, all that was left of the Dark Eldar were scattered pieces of charred flesh and fused armour. He was still reloading when another Dark Eldar warrior charged down the side of the ravine towards him, brandishing a sword and a crackling whip-like weapon. The roar of a shot cannon lifted the warrior off its feet, smashing its body ragdoll-like against the rock wall of the ravine. Alante looked round to see Maxim nearby the shot cannon in his hands, firing off more volleys of explosive scatter shells into the ranks of Dark Eldar, following on behind the first. Best fall back, sir, the big Hive Worlder shouted. I'll cover you. The Inquisitor and the alien magician are back there. If we're going to die, then we should at least make sure we die in the best company. Arriving before the Golden Throne alongside a senior Inquisitor might help when the Emperor makes his judgement on our immortal souls. ''Mind you, I'm not too sure what they'll have to say about all these aliens we'll have brought with us.'' Olante did as commanded. The distinction between First Lieutenant and Chief Petty Officer blurring in the heat of battle. Maxim swung his shotgun around, searching for more targets amongst the shadows of the ravine, when one of those shadows suddenly detached itself from amongst a cluster of nearby rocks and leapt upon him, knocking him off his perch.'' and sending both him and his attacker hurtling down the slope of a steep side gully. Maxim had fought many tenacious opponents hand to hand before, but nothing like this creature. It was one of the dark Eldar things, but unlike any that Maxim had seen so far, its naked flesh was pierced by hooks and barbs, many of which seemed to be holding parts of it together, with the glistening red of raw viscera clearly visible through the splits in its flesh. As they rolled down the slope... Maxim's hands scrabbled for purchase on the creature's slime-coated flesh, one hand finally finding purchase around its throat, piercing himself on the blade set into its flesh as he tried to throttle the life out of the thing. The creature giggled as Maxim's powerful grip crushed its wingpipe, grinding together the bones of its throat. It cackled as the sharp rocks of the gully tore and bruised both their bodies as they rolled over them, The two of them were momentarily thrown apart by the bone-jarring impact of their landing at the foot of the gully. Maxim felt some of his ribs break under the impact and coughed up blood as he tried to shout in pain. The creature was on him again in an instant, tearing at the skin of his chest and face with the metal blades hammered into the tips of its malformed fingers. Maxim's grasping hand found a fist-sized rock, and roaring in pain and anger, he swung it up into the creature's face, repeatedly smashing it into its nose and teeth. The creature sniggered to itself through the ragged hole of its mouth. Its fingers were round Maxim's throat now, not as much strangling him as working their way into the flesh of his neck, leisurely searching for arteries and veins. Maxim felt himself starting to black out, part of him grateful that he probably wouldn't feel anything when the creature's questing fingers finally found his jugular. Dimly from far away, he heard a familiar voice calling distantly out to him. Up! Get its head up, Barossa, damn you, so I can get a clear shot at it! There was something in the voice which compelled obedience. With the last of his strength, Maxim's fingers found the creature's throat and jaw, Pushing upwards, he forced it to raise its head. The bolt around caught the creature in the centre of the face, blowing away most of its skull and throwing it several metres back. Groggily, Maxim watched as, incredibly, the thing began to rise to its feet again. Another bolt round blew it backwards again, followed by another and another. The detonations rang out in quick succession, until the shredded remains of the Dark Eldar Grotesque fell to the ground in a ragged, bloody heap. Maxim heard the sound of another body falling to the ground nearby behind him. Before he passed out, he just had time to glimpse the prone figure of Commissar Kyogen, the man somehow having dragged or staggered his way down here from further along the ravine. The now empty bolt pistol was still clasped in his bloodless hand. Kailasa knew the prize was close now. The craft world weaklings and what remained of their Monkai allies had fallen back as far as they could, and attacked what remained of his own force with desperate fury. A female striking scorpion, one of Arra's cowardly brood, who had refused to follow their fallen phoenix lord farther into the dark embrace of chaos, leapt forward, cleaving in the skull of the retinue bodyguard beside him, spitting another warrior on the point of her blade with her return blow. Kailasa stepped over the tumbling bodies of his two dead followers, and casually swept aside the scorpion warrior's attack upon him. His own blow severed her weapon arm at the shoulder. Numbly, in shock, she fell to her knees as the Dark Eldar Lord swept past her. A Monkai, in the uniform of the second-in-command of one of their warships, Kailasa had seized enough slave fodder in successful raids along the Mongkai shipping lanes to know something of the hierarchy of their rankings, brandished a las pistol weapon at him. Kailasa stepped aside, dodging the monkai's shot, and felled him with a single agonizer round from his splinter pistol. Another monkai, in elaborate robes of rank, barred his way towards the prize. Kailasa brought his pistol up to bear again, but was made to stagger back by the invisible impact of a psychic blow emanating from the upstart Monkai. The blow was weak. The rune wards carved into the Dark Lord's armour were enough to protect him from the full force of it, but it was enough to knock him off balance for a moment. In that moment, Horst raised and fired the plasma pistol in his hand, but the shot missed, Striking the ravine wall, behind where Kalisa had been standing, turning the rock into molten slag. The dark Eldar moved with preternatural speed, closing the distance between him and the human Inquisitor and felling him with a stunning strike with the punnel of his sword. At last, Kailasa stood before his prize. The figure of the aged fireseer cowered before him, frail and helpless. Kailasa doubted that this one would be able to withstand the ordeal which would soon be his for long. But there were homunculi surgeons and skilled flesh sculptors and pain artists who knew ways of trapping life and sensation within the ravaged forms of their victims for longer than could ever be thought imaginable. Grandfather Farseer, the Dark elder Lord sneered, affecting a mocking bow. If only you knew what pleasures await you when I bring you back in triumph to Kimura. Caradriel stared in awe and dread at the figure before him. The Dark Eldar Lord was everything he had ever imagined. A piece of black legend from his race's darkest and most secret myths come to terrible life. More terrible still, with his mystic farsight, he was able to see the swirling black halo which surrounded the Dark Eldar like a living cloak of shadow. This creature, this abomination standing before him, was the focal point of the Shadow Point, even if the Dark Eldar itself did not perceive it. All the elusive glimpses of possible futures, all the false prophecy images, all the tantalising hints of what might still come to pass, coalesced into this place and moment of time. And then... Like shadows retreating and shrinking before the rise of the dawn sun, the black light aura around the Drakari warrior lord dwindled and shriveled away, scorched by the light and the heat of something far greater and more powerful. Caradriel looked with his eyes, with his inner farsight, and then he laughed in genuine pleasure, for now he knew what was coming along the ravine towards them. The Burning God was here at last. Chapter 18 The Avatar advanced down the neck of the ravine, the stone of the walls glowing cherry red in places as they were touched by the heat of his passing. Where he walked, Dark Eldar died before him. Some ran, trying to flee his terrible wrath. Others stood and tried to fight, spitting blasphemous curses against his holy name. Flee or fight, it did not matter. They died, no matter what they tried to do. Three mandrakes hurled themselves onto the Avatar, clinging to its burning skin and hacking at it with their blades. They clung on to it relentlessly, screaming their hatred as the meat of their flesh was cooked from their bones. Dark Eldar warriors retreated before the Avatar, shots from their splinter rifles vaporising against its glowing iron skin Some it cut down with its black blade, or incinerated with fiery blasts of the blade's arcane power. Others it crushed into the dust beneath its iron feet. Others it struck down with its terrible molten gaze. It did not matter. Flee or fight, they all died, no matter what they tried to do. A pack of warp beasts leapt snarling at the Burning God. One creature it smashed aside with a blow from its glowing fist. Another it spitted on the end of its wailing blade. The third managed to land and racked at it with its talons. Magma blood boiled up out of the rents torn in the Burning God's iron flesh. The Burning God seized the creature and ripped it away from its body, smashing it against the unyielding rock face of the ravine wall. Kailasa charged at the Burning God, screaming his hatred. His first blow cut deep into it, splintering the dust and rocks with burning blood. One blow, however, was all the Burning God would permit him. As he swung again, aiming at the iron skin of its neck, the Avatar reached up and simply caught the blow in its hand. Its great fist closing round the blade of the sword, melting through it. Magma blood welled up and fell in streaming drips to the ground from where the unnatural metal of the blade cut into its divine flesh. In seconds, the dark Eldar Lord's sword glowed red hot. Kailasa screamed as the heat seared the palm of his hand, and he released his grip on its pommel just as the molten blade broke apart and fell uselessly to the ground. He raised a splinter pistol and aimed it up into the face of the avatar but was stopped in his tracks as he saw the god staring down at him, the cold fury in its burning eyes holding him in a paralysing stasis more compelling than any poison or nerve toxin. Slowly, helplessly, he watched as the giant warrior laid down its sword and reached up with two massive hands to unfasten the bindings of its helm. Slowly, helplessly, He watched as the giant warrior removed its helm and turned its naked face towards him. The Burning God looked upon the Dark Eldar. Kailasa looked up into the god's terrible, beautiful face. He tried to scream, but the flesh of his face was already melting away as the unbearable light and heat radiating from the visage of the Burning God's unmasked face fell upon him. All that was left of Kailasa of the Cabal of the Poison Heart fell to the ground in a smouldering, ashen heap which the Avatar trod unnoticed into the dust as it strode over to Caradriel. The Farsier bowed in awed abeyance before the Burning God, not daring to look up into its forbidden face. My lord, Mancha Kane, what would you have me do? He asked, trembling. He felt the Burning God lay one fiery hand upon him. Its touch did not harm him even though the air around its skin shimmered with the searing heat radiating from its iron skin. Caradriel understood what was required of him. Slowly, helplessly, he raised his head and looked into the god's face. Light, bright and unbearable, washed over him, obliterating everything. He gazed into the true face of the burning god, and at last he understood everything. Still sick with pain, Freya of the striking scorpions climbed groggily to her feet, slowly taking in the details of the carnage around her. The stump of her severed arm still burned with pain, but as one who walked the warrior path, she knew mental incantations and secret body disciplines to numb the pain and staunch the life-threatening flow of blood from the wound. She remembered being struck down by the Drakari warrior, and dimly, as she lay semi-conscious, She remembered a burning giant looming up over her and looking down upon her with a face that blazed like the heart of a sun. She was still trying to remember what had happened. When she saw the body of the Farseer, she ran towards it. The bodies of two Monkai lay nearby. Both were alive, although the one in the uniform of those who manned the warships of the human's corpse god Emperor had been struck by a drakari agonizer round. He had mercifully passed out from the effects of the venom, but the toxin was still in his blood, and it would require a rare antitoxin to fully flush the poison out of his body. From the marks in the dusty ground and from the attitudes of the two unconscious humans, Freya could tell that both had been struck down while trying to defend their honoured kinsman. She would see that the human received a plentiful supply of the antitoxin, She knelt by the body of her Farseer kinsman, knowing already that he was dead. The ground around him was blackened, seared as if touched by a great heat. But strangely, Caradriel's body had been left completely untouched by whatever force had been unleashed here. Stranger still was the look of utter calm, and even the hint of a contented smile on the face of the aged Farseer. Freya knew there were things that needed to be done... Kneeling over the corpse of her kinsman, she began to recite the necessary incantations of honor and mourning to mark the passing of her craft world's most venerable seer. Stopping only briefly when she heard sounds in the sky overhead. It had begun with screaming, and now it ended with screaming the screaming of thruster engines as a trio of human shuttlecraft came in to land nearby. Given all that had happened since she arrived on this forsaken world, She did not find it strange at all when the landing ramps of the craft opened to disgorge mixed groups of human troops and Eldar Guardian crewmen from the Volun Show. The search party from the Macarius found Maxim's unconscious form at the bottom of the gully. He was covered in so much dried blood from the slashes across his neck and chest, as well as the numerous other minor wounds, that at first they had assumed him to be dead. But he had stirred groaning to life when they began to roughly haul his body back up the rocky slope. Stretcher litters were brought down to carry Maxim and the corpse of Kyogen up from the bottom of the gully. Maxim watched as the commissar's body was lifted onto the other stretcher. The bolt pistol was still gripped in the corpse's hand. But as the stretcher bearers hauled the body into place, Maxim saw the small, gilt-edged book slip out of the dead man's other hand, "'and fall to the ground. "'It's funny,' Maxim grunted, "'gracefully accepting the taji stick "'offered by one of his own stretcher-bearers, "'who he knew to be a long and valued customer of his "'and a useful source of pharmaceutical supplies "'from the ship's medical stores. "'Me and that silver skull bastard, "'we hated each other. "'There was probably nothing he'd have liked more "'than to send me to the Emperor "'with an execution round to the back of the head.' "'But in the end, he still saved my life.' "'Pain and the effects of the drugs he had been administered, "'and those others he had earlier self-administered, "'might have dulled his senses, "'but he still caught the look shared amongst the apothecary crewmen. "'You must be mistaken, Chief Petty Officer,' "'one of the surgeon's assistants said, "'in a tone reserved for politely humouring those whose brains had been scrambled by serious head-winds "'The Commissar's been dead for hours.' He must have died before the battle even began. Maxim painfully hauled himself out of the stretcher litter, angrily shrugging off the attempts by the stretcher bearers to restrain him, and staggered over to Kyogen's corpse. He bent down and picked up the small book the dead man had been clutching. It was no book of naval regulations or imperium political doctrine, which was what he had assumed it to be. It was an ecclesiarchy prayer book of the standard type issued in their billions to the officers and men of the Imperium's armed forces. The fake gold embossed Aquila emblem of the Holy God Emperor winked up knowingly at him from the book's scratched and battered cover. Somewhere out on the edge of the Stabia system, the last remaining Dark Eldar cruiser made its escape, unscathed and undetected. Its crew knew that their mission's failure would not win them a warm welcome from their cabal lord back on Kumora. But the vessel's captain was quietly confident that the greater part of the blame would settle on the dead shoulders of Lord Kailasa, and on the unworthy nature of their Chaos allies. And besides, her holds were filled with slave fodder, taken from the attacks on two of the vessels belonging to the Kai and their weakling craftworld allies so she would not be returning home to face her lord's displeasure empty-handed. Down in the suite of rooms assigned to him by his dark Eldar hosts, Cyphus of Eidolon was plotting the details of his continued survival in the face of the recent disastrous events. By now, with the escape of the despicable back into the warp, the despoiler would know what had happened here, so Cyphus knew the folly of even thinking about returning to the War Master's court to attempt to give his version of events. He was irrevocably tainted with failure, now in the unforgiving eyes of the Despoiler, and not even the patronage of his protector Zarathuston would shelter him from Abaddon's wrath. No, the Chaos Sorcerer decided he would remain here, amongst these Dark Eldar creatures. As he had realised before, they could easily be fashioned into a powerful and effective force by one with the imagination to see the unique possibilities they represented. Of course, Their ridiculous and self-destructive cabals and their love of intrigue and infighting would have to be done away with, but given time, Cephas was certain that a being of sufficient guile, intellect and mystic power could easily manipulate events so as to ensure their rapid rise to a position of command over such a force. And was he not just such a being? Cephas was still considering the pleasant details of his future empire building over his unwitting hosts, when his reverie was interrupted by the sound of the door to his chambers sliding open. One of the creatures, known as a homunculus, stood there. Several more lesser members of the same kind stood in the shadows behind him. It was only when the lead one started to speak that Sirfus noticed the cutting tools and restraining devices in their hands. A pity that your master's plan has come to nothing, chaos thing, it snickered. But... Do not fear, for if you cannot serve us in one way, then you can still do so in another. The voyage home is a long one, and our commander requires we provide her with some form of diversion to pass away the time. It should be an interesting experience for us too, for never before have we been gifted with such exalted chaos-altered flesh to work with. When we are finished with you, chaos thing, there should be enough of you left to fashion some new a novel kind of pet to present to the Archon himself. He keeps a large menagerie of such things, and you will enjoy your new home amongst them in the kennels of his citadel. Seraphus was still trying to frame the words of a spell as the gaunt figures of the dark Eldar flesh-sculptures glided silently forward towards him. After the horrors of Stabia, the interior of the dome of the crystal seers of Craftworld and Ielsis was a reminder of all that they had fought for and died to protect. The delicately perfume-scented mists clung like wisps of vaporous silk around the bodies of the trees, while the tiny, jewel-carapaced insect drones drifted from tree to tree in lazy pursuit of their endless, slow-maintenance tasks. Peaceable, musical-sounding chimes sounded from somewhere deeper in the crystalline forest, while the air gently pulsed with the soundless, psychic whisperings of the minds which inhabited this place. Freya finished her task planting the spirit stone two hand-reaches deep within the rich loam of the forest floor. She stepped away, still aware of the pain from her wounded arm, still aware of her awkward control over the new limb there. The healers had done their work well, but it would take much effort for her to learn how to master the movements of her new, bone crafted prosthetic arm with anything like the dexterity she had previously taken for granted. She was unsure, and the healers were unable to make any promises if she would ever be able to wield a weapon again effectively in combat. She had thought of abandoning the warrior path and finding other ways to serve her race and craft world, but she knew what would soon be required of all of them on Anelsis and the other craft worlds, and she realised that soon enough the Eldar would need every warrior they could find. In honour of her fallen kinsman and in recognition of the coming sacrifices that would still be required of them, she would persevere and regain the skills her injury had robbed her of. She bowed silently to the trees around her and exited the dome. The dome's occupants waited until she had gone before linking mines with the new arrival. An invisible psychic breeze stirred to life amid the mists and boas as the spirits of those who had gone before gathered to commune with the new mind amongst them. It is good to be amongst you all again, my old friends, sounded the mind-speech voice of Caradriel the Fireseer. I have much to tell you. Epilogue. Ships of the Line, they called them. Now for the first time, Liet and Semper understood just what exactly that phrase meant. In carefully manoeuvred formation, in wide, seared rows, the Imperial ships advanced into battle. Seventeen capital-class ships, including two battle cruisers and also two battleships, the fleet flagship, the mighty Divine Right amongst them. Twenty smaller vessels, frigates and destroyers mostly, swept out across either flank of the formation or formed a rearguard, following in the wake of the lumbering but majestic cruiser squadrons. It was a line of giant leviathans, the greatest ever force assembled in Gothic Sector history, the cream of battle fleet Gothic, under the direct command of Lord Admiral Ravensburg himself. It was an awesome sight, possibly the largest single naval force gathered together for battle since the long-ago and almost-forgotten days of the titanic struggles of War Master Horus's treacherous rebellion against the Emperor. Looking out from the bridge of the Macarius, at the lines of ships as they gathered prior to battle, Semper had turned to his second-in-command and smiled in grim humour at the vista before them. Vandai's teeth, Hito. I don't know what it'll do to the enemy, but just the sight of all this is enough to scare the life out of me. And now, the Macarius was there amongst them, moving forward with the rest of the fleet formation, taking its place alongside its sister ships. They were surrounded by illustrious names well known from battlefleet gothic history. The battleships Divine Wright and Cardinal Boris, venerable old warhorses, which formed the solid backbone of the Imperial line. The Mars-class battlecruiser Imperius, under the command of the near-legendary Compil Bast, whom even Erwin Ramus was said to be in awe of. The cruiser's Iron Duke, Minotaur, Zealous, Hammer of Justice, Sword of Orion, mionair Legend of Romulus and Sirius. Amongst them too were other less familiar names, newly built ships which had come into service only in the last few years to help replace some of the catastrophic losses suffered by Battlefleet Gothic in the earliest stages of the war. These ships may not have carried the same illustrious pedigree as some of their more venerable sister vessels, but already several of them, the Lunar-class cruiser Lord Daros and Jotunheim, the gothic-class cruiser Invincible, the overlord-class cruiser Cypra Probati, had distinguished themselves sufficiently to have already assured their place in the annals of battlefully gothic history. Yes, we'll all see our names mentioned in the history books, thought Semper, taking his customary place on the command deck, assuming any of us actually live through this day. They had been hounding the Chaos Fleet through the Gethsemane system for days, trying to bring it to battle. Now, at last, spotted and flushed out of its hiding place in the surveyor shadow of the system's second world, the enemy had been forced out into the open and made to stand and fight. No man within the Imperial Fleet had any illusions about just how critical this battle was. So far, Battlefleet Gothic had been slowly but inexorably losing the war, Barely one-holding actions were falsely hailed as major triumphs. Scattered retreats were disguised by Imperium propaganda as defiant withdrawals. Worlds retaken from the enemy were trumpeted as significant milestones on the path to final victory, with no mention made of the dozens of Imperial worlds still under the yoke of the despoiler, nor the stream of worlds which continued to fall to his endless attacks. We need this victory, gentlemen. Semper had told Olante and the other senior officers of the Macarius in the private briefing in his quarters before the commencement of the battle. This is the first time an enemy force of this size has been detected and identified. The first time we of Battlefleet Gothic have been able to assemble a force of sufficient size and strength to bear on it and bring it to open battle. Have no illusions, gentlemen. If we win today, the war will continue, but we will have dealt the enemy a grievous blow and we will have shown the despoiler and our own people that we are indeed capable of defeating him. His voice had lowered then, and he had looked his assembled officers in the face, repeating the same words which he had heard from Ravensburg himself, just a few hours ago aboard the Divine Right during the Lord Admiral's final briefing to his fleet captains. But if we lose, gentlemen, then we will have lost the greater part of our battle fleet's strength, and the despoiler's final victory is all but assured. What we do here today determines the fate of the entire Gothic sector, and we can depend on none but ourselves to determine what that fate might be. Semper himself had looked up sharply at this last comment when he had first heard it, catching the eye of Ravensburg and, more significantly, also that of Inquisitor Horst, standing anonymously and unnoticed amongst the scrum of scribes and administratum and munitorum officials that formed part of the Lord Admiral's vast personal entourage. Horst held Semper's gaze for a moment and then glanced away, eyes downcast. To Semper, the meaning seemed unmistakable. Everything that happened in the Stabia system was it all for nothing, he wondered. Did we completely fail in our mission there? No, standing upon the bridge of his ship... Semper stood to attention, his officers and crew immediately following likewise, as the ship's comnet system crackled into activity, patching into a fleet-wide broadcast from the Divine Right, the distinctive voice of Lord Admiral Cornelius von Ravensburg, clipped and supremely confident, commanding and autocratic, echoed around the command deck of the Macarius and round every deck level of every ship in the Imperial Formation. Ah, here we go, gentlemen!' "'Into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell! "'Damn his eyes, may the Emperor bless and bugger us all!' At those semi-blasphemous words, which Imperium historians would subsequently alter to make sound a little more eloquent and noble, waves of torpedoes were launched at the Chaos Armada. The combined energy signatures from their massed launching momentarily blotted out surveyor screens on many ships throughout the fleet." The Chaos Fleet, still manoeuvring for position, scattered wildly to avoid the menacing waves of torpedoes, in the process tearing apart their own lines of battle. Bright starbursts of plasma detonations blossomed amongst the Chaos ranks, signalling at least a dozen or more successful torpedo impacts. Those Chaos ships, which had avoided the first torpedo wave, now brought their own superior ranged weaponry to bear on the advancing Imperial Fleet. Lance and battery fire, sporadic but deadly, reached out across the gap of still tens of thousands of kilometres between the two fleets, seeking targets amongst the Imperial line. Several vessels, the Drakenfels and Lord Darus amongst them, shook under the impacts of direct hits, but able to present their heavily armoured prows to the enemy, the Imperial line continued its advance into battle with only minimal damage. Inside the torpedo rooms of more than two dozen Imperial vessels, crews sweated and strained to load more volleys of the huge, 30-metre-long missiles into their firing chambers. On the gun decks of every Imperium ship, and on every command deck, anxious gunnery officers checked their firing solutions over and over again and maintained a careful watch on the green glowing lines of gun deck status runes. The Imperius, leading the charge from the vanguard of the Imperial line, was the first to draw serious blood. Even before the other ships could launch off a second torpedo wave, the Mars-class battlecruiser's Nova Cannon was firing with its deadly trademark accuracy. Its chosen target was the murder-class cruiser Deathblade, an old and bitterly hated adversary from several actions the Imperius and its crew had waged against the enemy in the Aura subsector. The front section of the Deathblade was consumed in a sudden and fearsome explosion. Broken and ablaze, the cruiser fell out of the chaos formation, its sister vessels hurriedly manoeuvring to get away from it as its surveyor signature showed all the wild and telltale energy fluctuations from damaged and out-of-control plasma reactors heading towards imminent and explosive overload. Cheers rang over the Imperial Calm channels, At the fate of the stricken enemy ship. Then, in the roaring blast of launching torpedoes, the deck-shaking earthquake rumble of gun batteries unleashed, and the incandescent scream of lance fire, the two fleets clashed together. Ravensburg plan was simple. A mass frontal assault with waves of torpedoes would, and now did, split the enemy formation into two. The Imperial fleet, formed into carefully staggered lines, would then advance through this newly stormed breach, taking fire from enemy ships on both sides, but simultaneously bringing their own port and starboard batteries to bear on different enemy targets. As a strategy, it was brutally direct. In execution, it was simply brutal. Ravensburg was well known for his jocular references to battle casualties as paying the butcher's bill. The price of the butcher's bill for the Battle of Gefsemain would be steep indeed. The Imperial formation, passing through two lines of intersecting fire, was buffeted and blasted on both sides by the enemy gunners. The Tyrant-class vessel, Zygmund, singled out by the gunners of four different enemy vessels, two on each side of it, was the first to fall. Its shield stripped away in seconds. It staggered under the impact of multiple simultaneous hits on both its flanks. Its engines destroyed, its gun decks reduced to burning wreckage. It lay stricken and helpless, as its sister vessels mercilessly passed it by, abandoning it to its fate. Enemy torpedo destroyers and attack craft bomber squadrons, hiding nearby in the cover of the larger cruiser vessels, quickly closed in for the kill, like schools of hungry barracuda. The Lunar Class Cruiser Excellent, famous for its defiant no-retreat stance, in the face of an Orc Space Hulk monstrosity two centuries earlier in the defence of Plataea, was set ablaze, proud stern, by a series of devastating torpedo and lance hits from the Grand Cruiser Foe Reaper and its phalanx of escorts. The last act of the Excellence Captain, Leonardus Matthew was to bring his dying vessel up to ramming speed, sending it crashing catastrophically into the hull of the Foe Reaper and bringing to an end the Chaos Ship's litany of atrocities across the Imperium, which stretched back for millennia. Captain Legado Mafia, who had commanded the Excellent during its famous action at Plataea, would have surely approved of his descendants' own final and very effective act of defiance. The entire Omega Squadron of Sword-class frigates was destroyed in a vicious duel with the Carnage-class cruiser Wanton Desecration and its squadron of infidel escorts, finally succumbing when bomber waves from the nearby Styx-class cruiser Violator entered the fray. The Firestorm-class frigate Europa fell prey to the guns of the Desolator-class battleship Nergal. For Lord Admiral Ravensburg, this particular item on the butcher's bill... Would come at an especially heavy price. His son, Manfred, the youngest of his 11 children and one of his favourites, had been first lieutenant on the Europa. On every ship involved in the engagement, surveyor screens swarmed with target icons. On both sides, members of gunnery crews simply dropped to the decks in exhaustion, overwhelmed by the heat, noise, and toxic offspill from weapons overheated to the point of catastrophe. On flight decks, ground crews worked numbly and robotically on a seemingly endless number of attack craft, prepping them for launch just as previously launched craft, battered and missing many of their wingmen, returned to their carrier vessels for refueling, rearming and urgently required repairs. The void around the giant cruisers was filled with a bewildering, swirling maelstrom of attack craft, fighters and bombers. Chaos and Imperial craft alike, all caught up together in one vast, straggling dogfight, spread out over tens of thousands of kilometres of space. Unable to distinguish friend from foe under such conditions, turret gunners on both sides often simply opened fire at any attack craft which came within striking distance, and more than one bomber or fighter pilot, having managed to survive the lethal gauntlet of the battle, found himself coming under fire from the defences of his own mothership. In a final, deadly series of salvos, the dual imperial formations broke through the chaos lines. The Divine Right, brutally ramming and smashing apart a damaged and powerless enemy frigate, which drifted into the battleship's path. As Ravensburg's flagship pulled away from the enemy fleet, ships on both sides still exchanging lethal bouts of weapons fire, the punishing damage taken by both sides quickly became apparent. If the Lord Admiral cut his losses now and fled back into the warp... Then he would do so without three of his capital ships and five of his escort vessels. Some badly damaged vessels would be unlikely to survive the dangers of the Immaterium, while several more, including the Lord Darius and the Dauntless-class cruiser Guardian, would surely face long months or even years of repair work in orbital drydock. Still, despite the damage his fleet had suffered, Ravensburg's plan had succeeded. As his ships continued to put distance between themselves and the enemy, gaps in the Chaos battle line quickly became visible. The foe reaper was gone, reduced to a tangled mass of burning wreckage from its collision with the dying Excellent. The malignant Maximus and the murder-class cruiser Steel Fang had been similarly reduced by concentrated salvos from the Imperial formation, while Steel Fang's sister ship, Crotos, had been the victim of wave after wave of combined attacks from the bomber squadrons of the Macarius and the Imperius and was now little more than a gutted hulk. Similar massed bombing waves from the Divine Right had relentlessly harried the Styx-class cruiser Corpse Maker and its escorts, crippling its launch bays and effectively knocking it out of the fight. Elsewhere, a wide ring of expanding, superheated gases and wreckage fragments was all that remained of a nameless, slaughter-class cruiser, which had explosively succumbed to combined fire from three different Imperial cruisers, while the Nigal, flagship of the Chaos Warmaster Admiral, Baal Hierophant Locus Vanema, bled out a telltale plume of burning plasma from its rear section, indicating the probable loss of one of its reactors from the numerous torpedo, lance and weapons battery attacks which had been directed at it during the battle. Aboard the Divine Right, Ravensburg watched the progress of the injured enemy battleship with his trademark cold and remorseless gaze. He would not learn until after the battle about the destruction of his son's ship by the guns of the enemy flagship but it would add little to his already firm determination to see the notorious battleship mercilessly hunted down and destroyed today. Once he learned of the vessel's presence in the Geftsamein system, then its destruction and the death of one of Abaddon's chief lieutenants immediately became one of his main aims in this conflict. "'Our fleet?' he asked, without looking away from the enemy positions. "'Still battle-worthy,' answered one of his adjutants, thinking of the number of crippled and seriously damaged ships in the Imperial line, and tempted, but only briefly, to add the word barely to his report. Good enough, reported Ravensburg, turning to his waiting command staff. Signal the ships and tell them to come about and re-engage the enemy. Tell them we're going back through the gates of hell, to finish the job properly this time. At Ravensburg's command... The lines of Imperial ships swung ponderously round, presenting their prows once more to the enemy. As they turned, flank-mounted batteries were able to open fire at the distant enemy, which dutifully returned the favour. The void between the two battered fleets was filled with sporadic weapons fire, as both sides steeled themselves for the second round of battle. The Imperial force advanced in a ragtag formation, its original line of battle broken by the rigours of the first encounter, and the losses sustained then. The Chaos Fleet, split apart by the first Imperial charge, was in even greater disarray. Torpedo launches streaked from the prows of various Imperial craft, seeking individual targets of opportunity within the confusion of the enemy ranks. Other ships, damaged or with their torpedo payload already fully expended, were unable to launch anything. Aboard the Tyrant-class cruiser Incandrius, Its captain screamed vicious, bloody obscenities into his internal comnet, threatening death, damnation, and the worst punishments allowed under naval regulations. If his loading crew didn't get their fingers out and fire off some damned torpedoes, all the time unaware that his entire torpedo room had been transformed into a derelict morgue, a lucky melter missile hit had struck that section in its weaker flank side, opening up a catastrophic breach in the cruiser's hull. Those torpedo room crew, not fortunate enough to be immolated in the initial blast, had instead been sucked, screaming out into space through the giant molten hole in the chamber's wall. Aboard the Macarius, Learton Semper faced the prospect of his probable and imminent extinction with all the aplomb expected of a product of Cypramundi's thousands of years of breeding officers for the Imperial Navy. What's our status, Mr. Olante? Two starboard gun decks ablaze, Captain. We have a minor conflagration raging in the second rear arsenal, and a larger one in the upper portside launch decks. But that perhaps doesn't matter so much, since we've accounted for and recovered for rather less than half of our attack craft squadrons, and we really have no more need for those decks anymore... External communications are shot half to hell, but that doesn't perhaps matter so much either, since there's so much battle interference and comms babble going on out there that no one can hear anything anyway. Crew casualties are currently running at almost 20% and expected to rise even without further battle damage. Our void shield generators are dangerously overloading, and I believe Magus Castor Boris is down in the engineerum now in the process of performing the last rites on our number three plasma reactor. Semper almost smiled. Elante could make the second coming of the traitor War Master Horus sound like nothing more than a petty inconvenience. What's your opinion of our current battle status then, Mr. Alante? Elante's answer was immediate and unblinking. I think there's a damn good chance we'll all be getting reacquainted with a few long-dead old comrades before the day's out. Semper looked shrewdly at his second-in-command. Did you think you would end your days back home on Necromunda, Hito? Telling bored grandchildren tales of your glorious exploits amongst the stars in the service of the Emperor's Navy? The thought had occurred to me, sir, but only in a pleasing if somewhat abstract sense. This time, Semper did smile. Laugh, in fact, as he clapped his second-in-command on the shoulder. A fine daydream, Hito, but your battle fleet gothic now. For us, and all those like us, this is always how it's supposed to end. The Macarius, along with the other ships in what remained of the Imperial line, drew closer on their targets. The bridge rocked as the first enemy weapons hits impacted against the ship's beleaguered, failing void shields. Torpedoes, Mr. Nider? asked Semper. Six in the pipe, six more on the shelf, Captain, reported the Macarius's ordnance officer, the strain of the engagement showing on his face. Semper knew the loss of so many of his attack craft crews had affected the man deeply, even if he would never openly admit it. That's all I can give you for the time being, sir. The loading deck from the forward arsenal is smashed, and I can't release anything from the rear arsenal until those fires back there are under control. Very well. Twelve it is, nodded Semper. No sense letting them go to waste. Find a target and fire when ready, Mr. Nider. The Macarius shook, and shook again as it fired off two salvos, sending three missiles apiece, streaking off towards two different targets. Semper studied the surveyor screen closely. At first he thought the ships within the Chaos Fleet were simply manoeuvring to evade the many individual torpedo salvos from the Imperial Line. But then... Even before the shout from one of his helm officers came understanding about what was really happening. Their fleet's breaking up! They're attempting to disengage! On surveyor screens and auger displays, all through the Imperial formation, the truth quickly became evident. The enemy fleet was breaking off from battle, those vessels which could, running for the warp jump point at the system's edge and abandoning their damaged brethren to the mercy of the Imperial guns. Ravensburg's attention was still almost solely fixed on the escaping fleet and the prize of its fleeing flagship, but he was not about to pass up the free opportunity now being presented to him. "'Open fire!' he commanded to his fleet as they swept past the drifting cluster of damaged chaos vessels, firing broadsides into them at something close to point-blank range. "'We'll gladly accept these scraps, but only as an appetizer for the rest of the feast.' Many of the ships within the Imperial line channelled extra power to their engines, pushing ahead to catch up with the faster enemy ships. Speculative shots from lance turrets and torpedo tubes ranged out in pursuit of the escaping enemy, seeking to hit and hopefully cripple engines and power systems. Suddenly, a sword-class frigate, speedier than the larger capital ships and racing ahead of the main Imperial formation, exploded apart, its prow bursting open. At once, the alarm was passed through the Imperial fleet. Mines! Captains and surveyor officers shouted to helm crews... ...as emergency surveyor sweeps were made... ...and new courses urgently laid in to avoid this latest threat. Aboard the Divine Right, Ravensburg cursed violently and volubly. The enemy had dropped mines in their wake to cover their retreat. Scattered widely enough amongst the other debris of battle they would be a real hazard to the pursuing Imperial fleet. By the time his ships had picked a safe passage through the drifting minefields or had sent out attack craft squadrons to clear a path through them, the Chaos Fleet would be long gone. How many casualties could he afford, he wondered, if he simply ordered his already weakened force to simply push on ahead and run the gauntlet of the minefield? He was still pondering on the variables in that cold, harsh calculation when he heard the astonished shout from one of the bridge officers. vandyr's teeth? Ships? A whole new fleet of them? Where did they come from? Aboard the Macarius, aboard every ship in the Imperial formation, the reaction was the same. Looking at the images on the auger screen, seeing the distinctive energy signatures of the new arrivals on the surveyor screen, Semper could only imagine the mood of consternation, "'amongst his counterparts on the command decks of the enemy ships.' "'Elante confirmed what Semper already knew. "'Eldar vessels, more than twenty of them, "'including a dozen or more capital-class warships. "'Emperor only knows where they came from "'or how long they've been here watching everything.' "'The Emperor only knows what they're going to do next,' "'Semper thought to himself, almost afraid to watch, "'but unable to tear his gaze.' from the lines of newly emergent icons on the Surveyor screen, their strange energy patterns shifting and fluctuating as they drew closer towards the Imperial and Chaos Fleets. The Eldar ships were coming in fast on a tangent course intercepting the escaping Chaos Fleet, but which, with a minor change of heading and brief burst of speed, could just as easily bring them into attack range of the Imperial ships, Everyone aboard the command deck of the Macarius knew all too well just how fast and manoeuvrable the alien vessels were, and how such a sudden but insignificant course change could be made effortlessly and without warning. "'Alien bastards! I've known their treachery before!' cursed Augustus Ortalius, captain of the Divine Right! "'They're going to attack us, Admiral! We must open fire upon them now!' "'No!' It was the voice of Horst, standing on the command deck beside Ravensburg, the full weight of the authority of his rank of Senior Inquisitor and an envoy of the Council of Terror evident in that single word. We wait. Let them act first. Then we will know what their true intentions are. Aboard the Macarius, the mood was equally tense. Damn it! we still can't positively identify any of the Eldar ships. The Surveyor officer wilted. "'before his captain's impatience. "'It's notoriously difficult to identify "'an individual Elgar vessel's energy signature, "'even if you already have previous sightings "'of that vessel on record, Captain. "'The fact that there are so many of them together "'only makes it a shout from the communications section "'put the man out of his misery. "'We're being hailed, Captain, by one of the alien ships.' "'Semper and Alante exchanged quick, alert glances.' ''Open Comnet channels,'' ordered Semper. ''Good hunting, Macarius.'' The voice on the bridge comnet speakers was proud and confident, with a slight mocking edge to it. The familiar words of Battlefleet Gothic's customary greeting between vessels sounded strange too, framed in the inhuman voice of an Eldar. Both Semper and Alante were grudgingly impressed, "'Craftmaster Lilithan's spoken gothic was nearly flawless, "'and the haughty Eldar commander had clearly learned much "'about the Imperial Navy and its customs "'since they had last encountered her and her ship. "'Good enough, Volun Shou,' answered Semper. "'When we first met, we were mostly enemies. "'When we parted, we were mostly allies. "'What are we now?' you wonder. "'Again, that slight mocking tone.' To the Eldar's voice. This time we bring a gift with us, Macarius. The gift of Maldenan for the servants of the one you call the Despoiler. Alante looked at its captain, puzzled. Maldenan, Total and merciless extermination, smiled Semper, as the Eldar ships opened fire. A cruiser at the head of the retreating Chaos fleet was blown to pieces struck multiple times by the withering, relentless fire from the Eldar vessel's pulsar lance armaments. Seconds later, more hits registered all along the front length of the chaos formation. Some returned fire, their gunners desperately seeking targets amongst the elusive, fast-moving Eldar ships. Others manoeuvred in panic, seeking another escape route, their course taking them back towards the guns of the waiting Imperial fleet. Both fleets, human and Eldar, with the Chaos Fleet trapped between them, open fire. The Battle of Gephsemane would rage for days yet, with elements from both fleets hunting the remnants of the Chaos Formation through the system, and there would be fierce losses on all sides, but the final outcome of the battle was no longer in doubt. Mal-Danan, total and merciless extermination of War Master baal Hierophant Locus vanima and his entire fleet. A new chapter in the Gothic War had begun. And there we go. The end of this particular story. But if you want more stuff on the Gothic Sector, fear not. For I will be making a lore video very soon. The, the history of the Gothic Sector War. So stay tuned for the channel to the channel for that. Uh, thank you all for watching this took a lot longer than i thought uh, for long-term viewers you'll probably know i have uh, had some personal issues i've got a i've got a baby on the way and uh, had some family um, illnesses i've had to take care of but uh, we should be back in more or less in shape now uh the content will be coming out thick and fast that's how i like it <laughs> and uh, yeah stay tuned please do give the video a like. Please do subscribe if you're not subscribed. Share this to anyone you think might like it because it really helps the channel grow um, and all those things help. Comment as well. Please do that. That's fantastic if you could. Let me know what you think. And uh, yeah, yeah, more stuff is coming. If you would like to support the channel and the work I do here, uh, I would really appreciate it if you could become either a YouTube member, a member on the Patreon or a member over on Subscribestar because I know some people like to use that instead. Either of those options is fantastic and it really helps me. That's enough begging, and I am begging. Please, I've got a baby on the way. Come on, lads. (laughs) I'm kind of joking, but I'm serious as well. So, yeah, if you could help, that'd be great. Anyway, I will be back very, very soon with more stuff. Like I say, within a few days of this dropping, there will be a, a Battlefleet Gothic lore video coming out. I am then moving on to doing a bit, like it's like a campaign history, right? Like previous ones I've done. And then I will also be doing a big lore video on the entire history of Blackstone Fortresses, from the creation of them by the Eldar God of to the current day where Abaddon's just handing them out like, um, you know, spare kittens. I don't know. Like, he's just handing them out to people. I don't know. And, uh... We'll be covering all that in a big lore video and also discussing the Blackstone Fortress uh, novel series that came out recently, which is very good. So it's sort, of, uh, it's sort of related to this because obviously Abaddon did a spoiler and the Blackstone Fortresses. So I'm on this kind of... This is my area at the minute of the lore, um, rereading a lot of stuff I haven't read for a very long time. And that was one of the reasons why I selected these novels because I remembered them and they made me fall in love with the Battlefleet Gothic whole side of things. Those battlefleet gothic games that came out fairly recently, well, well, the one of them was, but the second one was about three years ago now, I think probably. Fantastic game, beautiful look to it, really beautiful game. Shame it died as quickly as it did because the multiplayer, I thought, with a few fixes, could have been quite balanced and fun, um, especially if you're dark elder and you like to kite people like I do. But uh, yeah, this was this was a great sort of walk down memory lane for me. A fantastic uh, a fantastic novel series. It's a shame there's only two of them. But uh, we finish with this big climactic battle. Um, the, the author of this is a fantastic author. He wrote these and a few other bits and bobs. He came up with Blood Quest, uh, Gordon Renee. Uh, I was informed by him that uh, I was saying his name wrong, and hopefully I'm saying it correct. He said it was like a lower low, so I'm guessing it's Renee. Anyway, I'll, I thank you all very much for watching, and uh, yeah, I'll be back again very, very soon. All this fun stuff is to come. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your continued support and viewership. I really appreciate it. And uh, let us all go forward together and enjoy all the new things to come. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm trying to sound sincere. It hasn't worked. But I'll be back again very, very soon with more stuff. Bye-bye. ta Have a good one. And may the Emperor protect.